Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 112, Space Shuttle Flight 41, STS-40. Jar full of jellyfish. Last time, we talked about the complex flight of Discovery on STS-39. Discovery dropped off the free-flying payload IBSS-SPAS-2 and then executed a series of dozens of proximity operations maneuvers, all in an effort to better characterize what maneuvering spacecraft look like in various wavelengths. I mentioned on the episode how we hadn't seen the shuttle pallet satellite, aka SPAS, since STS-7, but I was wrong. Listener Shahar wrote in and correctly pointed out that SPAS actually flew on STS-41B, but remained in the payload bay due to a problem with the remote manipulator system. Shahar's source? Episode 77 of some podcast called The Space Above Us. Whoops. Thanks for keeping me on my toes. Which actually leads me into the problem that we'll be discussing today. Astronauts can't be on their toes in microgravity. (laughs) I'm not going to apologize for that segue. Anyway, even before humans flew in space, there were concerns about what the weightless environment would do to the human body. If you remember way back to the early Mercury days, there was all sorts of speculation about various maladies. Some of it was pretty strange, like the idea that astronauts would look out the window and become so disconnected from their home planet that they'd sort of lose their minds. Some of it was a fair concern, but turned out to be no big deal, like can an astronaut eat or drink while floating around? And some of it actually turned out to be accurate, just not in the way they were thinking, like how the human eye changes shape during extended stays in weightlessness. Well, soon enough, Project Mercury answered the basic questions, but as humans started flying on longer and longer space missions, new questions and concerns arose. Some of these were immediately practical, like how long can a spaceflight be before the pilot of the vehicle starts encountering issues during the rigors of reentry? On a capsule design, this is not as big of a concern, but for the shuttle, the commander only gets one shot to stick the landing at a specific location, regardless of how dizzy he or she might be feeling. Other concerns were more long-term. With a space station and hopefully someday return to the moon and a mission to Mars on the horizon, NASA needed to understand the long-term impact of weightlessness on the human body. This is the realm of life sciences. So it's time for the first Space Lab mission entirely dedicated to such studies. Space Lab Life Sciences 1, or SLS 1. Also, does this count as me answering a common email question on if I'll talk about SLS? Why, of course. Here it is. (laughs) But let's not get distracted. Filling Columbia's payload bay for this mission was a pressurized Space Lab module, a long tunnel to get to it, and a whole bunch of experiments. Some smaller life science experiments had been performed over the course of the previous 40 shuttle missions, but this flight had more focus on it than anything since the old Skylab days. The flight was all about the sort of meta-goal of establishing the basic facts so that later flights could be planned with confidence. It sort of reminds me of Buzz Aldrin turning random nuts and bolts on the back of Gemini 12, or the early shuttle flights dedicated to characterizing the basic response of the orbiter to the space environment. If NASA had a long-term future in space, we needed to know exactly what we were getting into. With that in mind, STS-40 would carry 18 life science experiments, 10 performed on humans, 7 performed on rats, and one experiment performed on almost 2,500 jellyfish. It is quite the mission. Commanding the flight was Brian O'Connor, who we've seen once before as pilot on STS-61B, which featured the ease and access construction payloads. 
This is his second and final flight, but he'll be with NASA for quite a while longer, moving into management and working at NASA headquarters. Our pilot for STS-40 is Sidney Gutierrez, who was born on June 27, 1951 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He earned a degree in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Air Force Academy, while also participating in the National Collegiate Championship Air Force Academy Parachute Team, which is apparently a thing. A really cool thing. I guess Gutierrez had an early taste for weightlessness since he performed over 550 jumps and earned a Master Parachutist rating. He next learned how to fly instead of how to fall, and became a T-38 instructor, flew the F-15 Eagle, and went to the Air Force Test Pilot School, where he worked on the F-16. NASA came calling in 1984, and this is his first of two flights. Moving along the flight deck to our mission specialists, sitting on the right was Mission Specialist 1, Jim Bajan. We know Bajan from his flight on STS-29, which deployed TDRS-D and completed the initial constellation for the Tracking and Data Relay Satellite System. This is Bajan's second and final flight. Moving over to the left, we find Mission Specialist 2, Tammy Jernigan. Tamara Jernigan was born on May 7, 1959 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Jernigan earned a bachelor's degree in physics, a master's degree in engineering science, a master's degree in astronomy, and a PhD in space physics and astronomy from Stanford, Stanford again, Berkeley, and Rice. Which, wow, good job. Somewhere in there, she spent several years working at NASA Ames as a research scientist, specializing in star formation, gamma ray bursts, and shockwave phenomenon in the interstellar medium. She was selected as an astronaut in 1985, and if you'd like to pick her brain over all those fascinating topics, you're in luck, because she'll be with us for a while, with this being her first of five flights. Moving down to the mid-deck, we find another friendly face, Mission Specialist 3, Ray Seddon. We know Seddon from her flight on STS-51D, which performed the first contingency EVA of the shuttle program in order to deploy the homemade fly swatter device. This is her second of three flights. This flight also has a couple of payload specialists. Payload specialist one was Drew Gaffney. Francis Andrew Gaffney, who goes by Drew, was born on June 9, 1946 in Carlsbad, New Mexico. He earned a bachelor's in psychology in 1964 and his MD in 1972. Gaffney specialized in cardiology, eventually writing over 100 publications in cardiovascular regulation, space physiology, and patient safety. He crossed NASA's path in 1986 when he became the visiting senior scientist with the Life Sciences Division at NASA headquarters. This is his only spaceflight, but he'll stick around for a while, serving as a program scientist for the D-2 Space Lab mission that's still a couple of years down the road. And last but not least, Payload Specialist 2, Millie Hughes-Fulford. Millie Hughes-Fulford was born on December 21, 1945, in Mineral Wells, Texas. She started college at the age of 16 and soon had earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry and biology. Not long after that, she picked up a PhD and added doctor to the start of her name. Among other things, Hughes-Fulford studied blood plasma chemistry, the regulation of cholesterol metabolism, T-cell activation, and bone and cancer growth regulation. She'll be sticking around NASA for a long time, serving as the principal investigator for experiments studying osteoporosis on STS-76 and STS-84. She was also a researcher on an experiment on the International Space Station that proved a link between microgravity and T-cell dysfunction. That's important information, since T-cells are a key part of the immune system. This is her only spaceflight. 
The launch was delayed due to a few minor issues. First, there were some computer problems, along with a concern about temperature probes in the main propulsion system. Then, during the T-20-minute hold of the second attempt, an inertial measurement unit began giving bad data. Since the IMUs are a critical part of the guidance system, that was no good and the launch had to be scrubbed. Third time's the charm, though, and on June 5th, 1991, just before 9.25 a.m. Florida time, Columbia leapt off of the pad at Launch Complex 39B, beginning its 11th mission. Right off the bat, something noteworthy happened. This was the first flight of the solid rocket boosters that used a new manufacturer for the chemical ammonium perchlorate, part of the booster's propellant. Everything stayed within specifications, but for the first 20 seconds of the flight, the SRBs slightly underperformed. This wasn't that big of a deal, since it soon recovered to expected levels, except the computers on the orbiter assumed that those 20 seconds would be representative of the entire ascent. The adaptive guidance throttling system slightly increased the output from the shuttle main engines to compensate. But since the SRBs recovered, the SSMEs were now running too high, leading to more energy than expected. In the end, this had no impact to the mission and just led to a somewhat shorter Ohms 2 burn, but definitely raised some eyebrows and led to a redesign of the algorithm. As always, main engine shutdown unleashes a flurry of activity. Before Columbia was even properly in orbit, some of the mission specialists had scrambled out of their seats in order to take photos of the external tank before it drifted too far away. These photos helped to assess the performance of the tank and maybe spot any issues like burned spots or missing insulation. Another key early activity is opening the payload bay doors and exposing the shuttle's radiators. Until that happens, the systems rely on the flash evaporators to keep everything nice and cool. As the payload bay doors were opened on STS-40, however, it was clear that all was not well. When the crew looked towards the back of the payload bay, they could see that several thermal blankets had become partially detached from the aft bulkhead, the back wall of the payload bay. Not only that, some of the environmental seal, which as the name implies seals the payload off from the external environment, had come loose. A three-foot section of the seal had come out, extending about five inches out and three inches down into the payload bay. This is no good. If the seal is out, then it can interfere with closing the payload bay doors, which is absolutely required for a successful re-entry. While the team got to work on their science activities, the ground got to work on this payload bay door seal issue. NASA came at this from two different directions. First, how big of a problem is this? Will the doors close? And even if they do, will they be less effective due to the seal? What are the implications? The second angle was to let the analysis people figure out the implications, while another team figured out how to fix it if there was indeed a problem. This way, Mission Control would soon know if a fix was required, and if it was, how to do it. To tackle the second angle, a team was sent from the Johnson Space Center in Texas out to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. There, they actually got hands-on with the same section of environmental seal on Space Shuttle Discovery, which had recently returned from STS-39. The verdict was that pushing the seal back into place was within the capabilities of an EVA crew if necessary. But while they were figuring that out, the analysis team determined that it was all fine to leave as is after all. So with two pieces of good news in hand, the mission could continue without concern. That's good, because we have a lot to do on this mission. In fact, for this first day, the crew had an 18-hour workday to get through. As we learned on Skylab back in the 1970s, it's important to not overwork the crew, but sometimes you just need to get a lot of stuff done in one day, so an exception was made. 
Plus, with the shorter duration of shuttle missions, the strategy of just kind of powering through was a little more practical. Among the first day activities were activating the Space Lab experiments and general reconfiguring of the orbiter for space operations, including chores like putting the mission and payload specialist seating away. One decidedly non-routine activity on the first day that caught my eye was the removal of a heart catheter from payload specialist Drew Gaffney. A few days before the launch, Gaffney, a cardiologist, had the catheter with a sensor inserted into a vein, where it was then sent all the way up into his heart. This was an invasive and potentially dangerous technique, but would provide unprecedented insight into how the heart handled the rigors of riding a rocket into orbit, as well as the first few hours of adaptation to the microgravity environment. The reason this especially stood out to me is I remember this coming up from the Skylab days. Researchers at the time had pushed to perform this experiment on one of the Skylab crews, but astronaut boss Deke Slayton was not impressed. In an effort to prove to Slayton how harmless it was, one of the researchers had a heart catheter inserted, but something went awry and his heart stopped. The volunteer was in capable hands and was quickly treated, but it dashed any hopes of this experiment flying in space while Slayton was in charge. I should mention that I'm just recalling that little anecdote off the top of my head, so a detail or two might be off, but it's also a good excuse for me to again recommend that you check out Deke Slayton's autobiography titled Deke. It's really great and gives a fascinating perspective of the early days of NASA human spaceflight. Thankfully for Gaffney and the mission overall, the heart catheter was removed without incident. And the heart catheter was just one of many experiments. I'm not going to read them all, because I think it would get pretty dull pretty fast. And you can always read the mission's press kit for yourself if you'd like all the gory detail. But let's hit a few of them. Again, the overall goal here is to better understand how humans are affected by the microgravity environment. This data would allow NASA to move into the era of long-duration spaceflight aboard space stations with better understanding of the needs of and risk to the crews. One of the issues experienced by astronauts is that life in microgravity is pretty easy on the heart. You don't really think about it, but unless you're lying down in bed, when you're on Earth, your heart is always working to force blood against the pull of gravity. But when you can float around, a lot of that effort goes away, and your heart can just take it easy. Well, the heart is a muscle, and what happens when you don't use your muscles? They start to shrink down. Your body figures, why spend the energy on muscles that you aren't using? But since astronauts would someday like to return to a normal gravity environment, it's important to understand how severe this deconditioning gets, as well as the rate at which it progresses. This could lead to just simple awareness of what to expect after a long mission, or to the development of treatments to help newly returned Earthlings readapt to life in gravity. So, with that in mind, the crew underwent a number of procedures throughout the flight to see how they were adapting. How fast was their pulse? How did their blood pressure change? How did things differ between just gently floating around versus using an exercise bike? And in addition to the heart, the response of the lungs was also examined. The crew would breathe from a device that would recirculate the same air for a while, measuring the levels of carbon dioxide and oxygen. This would let researchers determine how well the lungs of the crew were functioning. Again, my understanding is that these experiments weren't really looking to confirm any particular hypothesis. They were all about gathering basic nuts and bolts data about the human response to spaceflight. The cardiovascular system is not the only one affected by weightlessness. I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was in elementary school, I learned that humans have five senses. Vision, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. It turns out that this is a little simplistic. 
we can actually sense a lot of other things. For example, if you were to wake up in a darkened room, even without looking or touching, you would be able to tell which way your head was oriented. That's because deep in our inner ears are a bunch of tiny crystals called otoliths that move around inside an enclosure. Your brain can interpret the motion of these crystals and determine which way your head is being accelerated. Since gravity is just acceleration, you can think of your inner ears as gravity sensors, and thus you can tell which way is down. There are also three semicircular structures filled with fluid and oriented in three different planes. This fluid reacts as you rotate your head, and since each structure is in a different perpendicular plane, your brain can figure out pitch, roll, and yaw. With the otoliths handling linear acceleration and the fluid-filled semicircles handling rotation, you literally have tiny inertial measurement units in your head. The problem is that in space, all bets are off. There is no more down, so the crystals and fluid are free to float around. As the astronauts move their heads around, they're still going to pick up translational and rotational movement signals, but it's not going to be the same as on Earth. For a lot of people, their brain doesn't like this at all and assumes something really weird is going on. Maybe you ate a bad mushroom. Better get sick and throw it up. Welcome to Space Adaptation Syndrome. We've talked about Space Adaptation Syndrome before, and it's still a problem. A large number of astronauts are forced to struggle through waves of nausea for their first few days on orbit. This is unpleasant and is not great for somebody trying to concentrate on an important task. But space adaptation syndrome is not even the only problem here. Another one of the senses that I was never told about as a little kid is proprioception, the sense of where your own body is. It's critical for tasks as simple as not whacking your head on a doorframe as you pass through, and as complex as delicately piloting an orbiter to the runway. One thing that can impact your sense of proprioception is drinking excessive amounts of alcohol, which is why you might have seen cops ask suspected drunk drivers to close their eyes and touch their nose. This is easy for someone with a fully functional sense of proprioception since they know where their hand is and they know where their nose is. It's less easy if you've had a few too many drinks. Since it's critical for crews to be able to do stuff like operate a flight stick, precisely press buttons, or even something as extreme as pulling their parachute ripcord after bailing out of a damaged orbiter, it was important to understand how proprioception was affected by long-term stays in space. So along with the cardiovascular and lung responses, the crew's vestibular system was also being examined. One way of doing this was to try to confuse the system and see how it reacted. Trying to break something and seeing if it breaks in the way that you expect is a great way to suss out the inner workings of a system. So let's break the crew's brains. Sort of. Crew members placed their heads inside of a big helmet that had a rotating dome display. It would trick the crew member's vestibular system into thinking that it was moving in a direction that it wasn't. I'm not completely sure about this, but I think what they did was to rotate their head one way while displaying visual information that indicated it was moving the other way. The crew member would then use a joystick to try to indicate where they thought they were actually moving. This was a great way to tease out information on what the vestibular system could get right and what it would get wrong. And it also sounds like a fantastic way to make somebody barf in space. To check the effect of weightlessness on proprioception, crew members would look at visual targets inside Space Lab, put on a blindfold, and then try pointing at them. Other crew members would watch and note how accurate their pointing was. If it changed as the mission went on, that would be important information. In addition, the crew would sleep with a blindfold on, and when they woke up, they would try to mentally note the position of their body and limbs. Then they'd start moving around and take off the blindfold to judge how accurate they were. 
Remembering to do something the second you wake up, even before moving, sounds tricky enough to me, so I'm already impressed. I don't want to spend too long on these, so let's just rapid-fire hit a couple of the other human experiments. A special chair was flown so that the crew could measure their mass, even in weightlessness. The way this worked was that you essentially just strapped into this chair, stayed very still, and it would slowly wiggle back and forth. By measuring the force and acceleration required to push the astronaut back and forth, and by remembering that force equals mass times acceleration, their mass could be determined. At various times before and during the flight, the crew would ingest or inject special tracer chemicals. By collecting blood and urine samples throughout the flight, researchers could look for these tracers and better understand the impact of spaceflight on metabolism, red blood cell production, and other bodily functions. I did have to laugh when reading the description for the red blood cell experiment, which began, quote, The most consistent finding from spaceflight is the decrease in circulating red blood cells, or erythrocytes, and subsequent reduction in the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. That's the most consistent finding about spaceflight? Not, like, gravity? <laughs> Lastly, seeking to better understand the weakened conditions of astronauts' bones after an extended stay in space, calcium-metabolizing hormones in the crew members' bloodstreams were monitored. This could also help further our understanding of osteoporosis, a condition common in older folks where the bones become brittle and weak. On Flight Day 7, much of the orbiter was powered down, while some low-energy tasks were taken care of. This powered-down day would allow the crew to tack one more day onto the end of the mission. At first glance, this might seem a little silly, since they can't do much science on the powered-down day. But keep in mind that this mission is all about studying what long-term weightlessness does to the human body. So, an extra day later in the mission would yield more data. Actually, while Flight Day 7 was extra powered down, the entire flight saw much of the orbiter's equipment running in low-power modes. Three of the four CRT displays were turned off, three of the five computers were in standby, one of the three IMUs was in standby, and several multiplexers were turned off. This also had the side benefit of helping plan for extended-duration orbiter missions in the future. So while the crew catches up on housekeeping and enjoys the view out the window on their power down day, let's take a peek into the animal enclosures. One thing you won't find there are any monkeys. This might be surprising. The image of shooting monkeys into space is somehow a really enduring one. In reality, NASA's only ever sent two chimpanzees into space in the very early days to make sure the environment was safe for humans. Remember Ham and Enos? And really, chimpanzees aren't even monkeys, they're apes. But there was one mission that actually launched two squirrel monkeys into orbit, STS-51B. Reading through astronaut John Fabian's oral history, he specifically mentions why no monkeys were on this flight. When the squirrel monkeys were added to STS-51B, there were some obvious concerns. What if the monkeys got out? What if their, um, byproducts got out? It also turns out that a lot of the squirrel monkeys had a form of herpes, so what if they spread that to the crew? The crew was assured that the form of herpes that the monkeys had cannot spread to humans, and the cages were specifically designed to keep all of the monkeys and monkey-related substances contained. According to Fabian, things did not go quite according to plan. First, it was later learned that some of the monkey handlers on the ground did catch herpes from them, which, geez, that is not something I expected to be talking about. And second, to quote Fabian, there was monkey crap all over the place. 
This is dangerous to the crew and also not really a great image. So then NASA Administrator James Fletcher told the head of NASA Life Sciences that there would be no more monkeys flying with astronauts. Oh well. So, no monkeys. But what we did have was 30 rats and a whole bunch of jellyfish. 2,478 Aurelia ephyra, to be exact. The rats were actually undergoing a bunch of experiments that were similar to the crew. Their red blood cell generation was measured, along with cardiovascular data, calcium, bones, all that good stuff. The only thing I'll say about the rats is that everything on their end went pretty smoothly. The only hiccup was that they were drinking more water than expected, and the water sensor failed, so the crew had to keep a close eye on the little guys and manually refill the water and occasionally give them some hydrating gel. Sounds nice. Now, the jellyfish. You might be wondering why there are jellyfish on a space shuttle mission at all let alone 2,500 of them, how would they even fit? Well, first, these aren't the type of jellyfish that grow to huge sizes and erase your memories. That's a different podcast. They're super, super tiny, just a few millimeters across. And the reason they're on this flight is that jellyfish are some of the simplest creatures on Earth that still have stuff like nerves and gravity sensors. Hey, all right. Plus, they develop so quickly that they can be launched as babies and essentially grow up during the flight. These jellyfish would answer questions like, will the gravity sensors grow weird if there's no gravity? And will the jellyfish still be able to swim? They were also looking to answer the side question of if the jellyfish tolerate this at all. If they do, then they could be used on future flights for more research. Since I know you're all wondering, the jellyfish were mostly fine. While they were in space, they would swim around in circles, which makes intuitive sense to me at least. And when they came back, most of them figured out what was going on and started to swim properly which I guess means that their gravity sensors were working after all. They also seem to have handled the flight just fine, meaning that this same species could be used again in future flights for more research. NASA actually released a great little video at the time talking about the jellyfish, and I'll tweet it alongside this episode announcement, twitter.com slash spaceaboveus, and someday I'll have a show notes page at thespaceabove.us. I promise. Well, with the science done and dusted, I think it's time to check in with a The Space Above Us favorite, the Text and Graphics System, or TAGS. Poor TAGS. It's just so fun to pick on. Perhaps starved for attention, TAGS issued several false paper jam alerts throughout the mission. But on Flight Day 7, it actually jammed. The crew attempted to repair it, but just couldn't get the wrinkled paper out, and once again had to switch back to the old teleprinter. I brought this up not to pick on tags, well, not just to pick on tags, but because I learned a little more about the nature of its many jams. In this case, technicians later discovered that a paper sensor in the inner workings of the system was slightly misaligned, decreasing its sensitivity. The sensor in question was at the entrance to the developer, which I believe is what actually makes the text and images appear on the paper. The developing process leads to moisture being released, which condenses on the upper paper guide. I'm guessing that the sensor checks that the paper is aligned so that it won't hit this now damp component. So it makes sense that if the sensor is misaligned, the paper might get soggy, which gets it stuck, which gets it wrinkly, which gets it more stuck. Just imagine trying to slide a piece of paper along a damp piece of plastic. In an effort to prevent this type of jam in the future, that upper developer guide was removed and the exit was enlarged, which would allow the crew to more easily get in there and remove stuck paper. Will it work? I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. More important than tags working was the payload bay doors working, 
and with the end of the mission upon us, their time had come. The analysis showed that everything should be fine as is, but just to be extra safe, the pilot crew oriented the orbiter such that it was nose to sun, and then pitched it down 1.8 degrees. This attitude allowed them to warm up the loose section of the door seal while still cooling the radiators. After 30 minutes of that, they used a manual procedure to close just the port door. When that closed successfully, they waited 30 minutes and closed the starboard door. The analysis proved to be correct, since the doors latched with no problems. As Columbia tore a path through the upper atmosphere, one experiment was operating for what I believe is the last time. The Shuttle Infrared Lee Side Temperature Sensing Experiment, or SILTS, positioned in the orbiter's tail, measured the thermal environment of the left wing and fuselage. This is the fifth time that SILTS has flown, and I'm pretty sure that it's the last. I wasn't able to find any explicit mention of it being removed, but it was only intended to fly six times, and is mentioned prominently in the official documentation for this mission, but is not mentioned at all for the next Columbia mission. Analysis of the structural loads was performed to see if it made sense to remove the bulbous pod that contained silts from Columbia's tail, or if it could just be left there to potentially house another experiment. The math said that it was fine to leave in place, so even without silts inside, the pod remained as a distinctive visual quirk of Columbia's all the way to its final mission. Columbia touched down at Edwards Air Force Base, its mission complete, after 9 days, 2 hours, 14 minutes, and 20 seconds. For the first time, it was greeted by the crew transfer vehicle, sort of a cross between a mobile home and a scissor lift. The vehicle was originally used to greet airplanes at the Baltimore-Washington International Airport, but had been purchased and modified by NASA to make things a little easier for returning shuttle crews. Rather than walking down the stairs to the tarmac, the crews could exit the hatch and step right into a comfortable lounge where they were greeted by medical technicians ready to help them readapt to life on Earth. Such luxury. Next time, Atlantis is back for its ninth mission, a Tedra satellite is in the payload bay, and John Blaha moves to the left seat. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.